Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Leaving Hillsong. We're continuing today with part two of An Economy of Souls with Sean Namone. I'd like to thank everybody for the overwhelming response to part one. It was really heartening and the feedback has been brilliant. For some, I understand that it might have brought some things up for you. Some have even reached out to let us know that they've contacted a church to request information which had been documented on them without their consent or that of their parents. The next part of this talk is where I feel that Sean really brings the fire and I want to thank him for his bravery in addressing some things that aren't always easy to talk about. I want to thank him for articulating a path forward, yet I understand that some of the content around abuse might be distressing for some people. This episode, again, articulates events involving minors, and if you're in Australia and require support, please reach out to 1800RESPECT by phone or online at www.1800respect.org.au or Lifeline on 131114. Sean has added some videos in the show notes he recorded around unpacking and addressing secondary trauma. He also runs a podcast called Hints for Healing, which addresses some of these issues as well. So we really ask you to prepare for this episode. There's some fairly serious content involved. Take your time and look after yourself first. So here's part two of An Economy of Souls. How do you become a pastor? How do you become a leader in, in, in those contexts? And at least from my perception, the, the only prerequisite was a, a close relationship with, with the leadership, you know. And, you know, it's something that the, the Chinese like to call guangxi, you know, which is relationship. So, like, you know, you see the, the, the big leaders within the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. A lot of them is because they had close personal relationships that facilitated that it had nothing to do there was nothing to do with meritocracy or anything Uh like that it wasn't because they're exceedingly intelligent or or whatnot but some of them are you know I I admit it was often around your relationship who your father or mother was and things like that and and I you know you see a very similar circumstance in institutions like this in the same way that you might see you know, in a family-run business, but the only thing is that you have, you know, 20,000 people that are you know, associated yeah. with this business, but it's so rife with, you know, nepotism and and, um, and cronyism. All of the churches do it. They hand down to their sons and nepotism is definitely outstanding there. But even from a, a, from a professional point of view, do you see any personality aspects that that there might be favourable personality aspects or, dare we say, disorders that would work in someone's favour in achieving 
becoming a pastor? There might be certain personality traits that might influence such, but, you know, maybe I'll bring it back to, to Gabal Mate as well, you know, where, you know, he talks about influential figures in the world being influenced by the, the main motivation as to why they want power is because of an underlying trauma, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe that, that, that's, that, that's an issue that, that is quite pertinent in a place like this. Absolutely would tie I, I, in. I think so. So that, that thirst for influence, that thirst for power is to, you know, perhaps compensate for a need in their life. Comes into what I was saying before about that constant need for external affirmation, that constant need for self-affirmation, you know, and, and, that, and that was one of the main motivations and maybe one of the main drivers behind my own success as a, you know, as, as a young person. And maybe it also had an influence in terms of my success in, in my career and, and things like that, you know. So maybe I, I attribute something similar to some of the um, some of the individuals within the, that that institution as well. I see, because yeah. you have had an outstanding career, and I'm wondering, have you thought at all about what that that drive for success and that drive for excellence that that gets pumped into us, mm. you know, on Sundays and, yeah. and throughout the week? I've seen some incredible excellence come out of those institutions professionally for people, including you. Can you tell us a little bit about your career? Because it's exceptional. Yeah, I, I guess we can talk a, a little bit about that. Um, Do you think any of that pursuit of excellence had an influence on you as well? I think there was, there was definitely probably a part of it. I think... You know, and maybe it's a little bit less impressive than what you think, but I'm very grateful of of the encouragement that you give and that you've given over the years. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely believe that, you know, part of that experience, which was effectively my formative years, did really influence my career afterwards. And I've reflected in probably some quite damaging ways as well and and and, and some positive ones too and I'll, I'll maybe talk to that a little bit yeah. as well but yeah so soon after leaving probably would have been about 23 at the time and you know I'd, I'd graduated with um, a degree in psychology and I did postgrad studies in um, immigration and refugee law and similarly in peace studies and um, peace and conflict studies and international development and I ended up moving to the People's Republic of China you know I was Soon after, I was seconded by the uh, the Australian government under a program called the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development. And in China, I work with the um, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So in the uh, the regional office overseeing the uh, the People's Republic, Hong Kong and Mongolia. I worked in mostly child protection, mental health and psychosocial support and in um, community services. And I did this for the, the best part of a decade with UNHCR. So later I was in um, Nepal. I, was, I worked in Bangladesh with the Rohingya. I worked in Myanmar, of course, with the same community. I served in the, the war in um, northern Mali um, in 2002. Um, and later I was in Burundi um, and, and working with refugees from eastern Congo. But, you know, I think initially, and of course, I did reflect and, and change throughout my career. At least I'd, I'd like to think I did. There was, there was probably this, this need going into a career like that. And, you know, I, I, in many ways, I feel that it was probably akin to evangelical fervor, right? But just, just the same energy that would have otherwise have gone into, you know, passion for the church and evangelicalism and, and whatnot, but was just, just went into working in human rights issues and, you know, in international development and serving with communities or working alongside communities overseas. And, you know, one of the things in which I've come to reflect on a lot later was around, you know, the, the, the disparity in terms of, you know, power dynamics 
right? And the discourse around the, you know, the global north being, you know, the, the industrialized countries and then the global south, you know, being more poorer, poorer nations, right? And the power imbalance there. And, and also one thing that I wasn't really very conscious of or, or really thinking about at the age of 23 and going into context like this was my own power, right? And coming from not just a rich country, but also a rich institution. So in many ways, I felt that the things that, you know, we were doing, it had a feeling of, you know, neo-colonialism, right? Yeah. In that, you know, we have something that you need um, and we're going to give it to you and you're not going to have any say in terms of how we do it. We're just going to do it anyway and you should feel really grateful for that. And, you know, one of the things that I have to say that, you know, linking this back to, say, the institution that we're talking about previously was that I used to think that the only way, right, for a place like this to become, dare I say, impenetrable is to replicate itself all across the world. And in many ways, it's been quite successful in doing that. And I think in many ways, it was done with that same attitude that we are providing, regardless of where we go, we are providing you with something you need and we have to give it to you and it's going to be done the way that we want it and it is a form of neo-colonialism so upon reflection i came to see that things that i was initially very comfortable and that you know we are the purveyors of help and we're going to give it to the vulnerable people it was very much in line to the same way that you see some of these large institutions replicating themselves across the world. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to do, what, based on some of that reflection, is to try as best as I can to diminish that power imbalance and to focus on relationship and to also recognise that, for the most part, at least in the years that I spent overseas in many countries, I probably received a lot more from the communities and the relationships that I established in those places and what I had to contribute. Because in the end, what did I really know of those places? Fine, I might have been able to speak the local language in some context, right? I speak Mandarin, I speak French, and you know, I might have been, been able to, you know, to, to have some of those skills, but in terms of the intricacies of their culture, of their specific needs, I had no clue. If ever there were an opportunity to exploit power, it would be in those kinds of roles. And, and many people do. You you've know, got, well, I mean, and that's a, yeah. a huge topic. Mm. But, but you've done the, yeah. the exact opposite. And in all the time I've known you, I mean, it's taken me an hour and a half to get to, get to, to speak about your work today. And, you know, you, you've always gone diametrically opposed to that. And you're trying to work on a power imbalance there. These are the opposite outcomes to, uh, to, to pursuing a life as an evangelical pastor. I, I, the fervor, as you said, might be the same, but power obviously doesn't necessarily corrupt everybody. Yeah, sure. But maybe, maybe the goal is about decentralizing power and about giving more agency to, to the individuals that we might be working with. Yeah, maybe it's around the, the democratization of power and re reimagining how we might be able to do things like this and reimagining institutions you know and 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 maybe how i have come to that conclusion was around seeing harm i, I believe hopefully i believe that in acutely experiencing other people's harms and, and if people are generally compassionate right they might change you know, and I think that what we've seen at the moment, like probably more than ever, is you have people coming forward and saying, you know what, I was harmed by this institution and this is how I was harmed. And then that then requires a great deal of reflection from that powerful entity. They might not always do it, mm -hmm. right? They might not always do it, but it requires a great deal of reflection and then a changing in terms of how they operate mm -hmm. and to also recognize that harm 
maybe I'm too optimistic, but that is generally what is needed. And at least in terms of my own life, that's what I've tried to do. And I think it's, it's greatly influenced my, my practice. You know, you've probably seen, oh, I've probably seen a bit of an inversion in terms of my career, in terms of where initially there was a great deal of power and influence in terms of the roles that I had in the United Nations across the world until, you know, where now I mostly work as a, a trauma therapist, engaging with individuals and advocating on the individual level. And in many ways, I feel a lot more comfortable in that circumstance to be able to work alongside people to try to find the you know the either the, the psychological or psychosocial goals in terms of you know what they need to be able to properly recover from their experience of the past I mean you're talking about downgrading your own personal power which I'm just thinking about when people say well you can't blame this person or you can't imagine that it could be any different when they're confronted with all of this power of course they're going they to probably change need it. yeah in, in many ways probably you know in terms of what I was talking about before there might be a greater need or a greater trauma that that might necessitate that power that sense of external affirmation so they're not willing to give that up they're not willing to decentralize that you know they're, they're not willing to to offer up greater power for others in and they they need that power that sort of that guru-esque type relationship whereby I'm adored and you know and I need this other disempowered mass in order to be able to adore me you've got to wonder what's going on there power certainly doesn't affect everybody the same way and you're obviously very self-reflective an educated man from a Western country is considered a privileged position. So, Absolutely. And I wonder if that's to do with some of the control that you experienced at the institution as well. Hey, you know, maybe a lot of individuals aren't really privy in terms of the power that they have over others and their ability to manipulate people easily. You know, I, I like to chuckle at some of the things that I experienced. I mean, there, there are so many. But, you know, I think about politics and I think about the association with politics and the, the external idea that we don't get involved and things like that. But I'll give you an example. Every um, election time, I'll never forget, there would be the external admonishment that we don't have any political affiliations. We give people the agency to decide for themselves but then they'd say, but over here is Alan Padman and, and he's a great Christian and let's all put our hands forward, pray for him. And then there'd be like a, a prayer that, that, that is led to 2,000 people providing godly leadership for this individual. Like, I mean, surely you can see how manipulative that is, whereby it's basically saying, everyone, uh, yeah, just, just vote for this guy. Yeah, this right? is our guy. Of course. And, and the thing is, right, if you were generally conscious of your influence over a flock or over a group of people, you know, that, that guru within that charismatic leader follower paradigm, that then you wouldn't, you know, you would give people their own agency to decide and you, you wouldn't do things like that. You would know how messages like that can be manipulative and can influence people's decisions, and then you just step away. That's what ethical decision-making is around doing, yeah? particularly people in, in powerful, you know, in powerful And then that roles. makes me wonder how deliberate that all is and what's going on yeah. behind the scenes because, like I say, that's a very, a, a very powerful position to hold. And I always remember those kinds of things as being, almost incidental oh before you leave let's just quickly have a bit of a pray for this politician over here yes yes in many ways I, I feel a sense of compassion but where I don't where where I struggle where where there, there are circumstances where people do come forward with trauma right and with situations that you know they'll put in and end and they feel hurt by that and where it isn't intimately understood. And there isn't that feeling of, you know, wow, like we really did hurt a lot of people and we need to be accountable for that. 
and there's some really brave people at the moment in 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 the US and and if you know people have, have come out in terms of their own stories and many people have had wonderful experiences but that doesn't take away from the fact that many people haven't and let's try to do better you know in terms of some of that harm right let's unpack some of these things why have and and also i think what's important like ask yourself the question why haven't people been brave enough to come forward for me one of the one of the prime you know situations that probably highlights this notion of people not coming forward and it's not just because of fear i think sometimes it also had to do with that sense of connection that they felt in terms of group or groupthink or what not right and you know i'll i'll give you i'll give you an example you know the the interesting thing is like with time you can sometimes reflect and, and you can sometimes see things for what it was but at the time it might have felt differently or be perceived differently and i'll try to unpack why you know when i was in my late teens some of the things that i was i was observing in the youth ministry were really akin to hazing right i don't know if you know a lot about hazing culture particularly in institutions that try to harness a sense of collective identity right the american But, college stuff yeah yeah absolutely absolutely american college i mean you see it amongst you know in in teenagers you know it's 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 quite prevalent right but it 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 did happen in at least in the 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 youth ministry context that I was involved with i mean there used to be these crazes that 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 happened and there was one craze that probably lasted several weeks and it involved essentially mass groping amongst the young people right What? so often it was it was young people who were touching others right or it was sometimes the youth leaders who were doing this to people in their bible study group it was it was a big joke right mm. so it was okay. called it was, it was called checking mail so mm. young people would be walking and someone would would come around and would put their fingers between the the buttocks of the other person unaware okay. and the first time I, you know i experienced this was when i was in the bible study group and um i was I was asking what is this checking mail business why is everyone talking about it and having a big laugh and anyway we were playing basketball and I went up for a shot and then all of a sudden you know my bible study leader did this to me you know, right. I I, I yeah. looked back and remember thinking this is really weird and but at the same time I felt this sense of connection to the place so I sort of let it go right yeah. this circumstance happened for a number of weeks at one of the youth services there was a skit that was done whereby there was a relay race and they had made an oversized envelope so one side of the one side were to run with the oversized envelope in between their legs until it got to the other side and then they would change and then the other person would waddle over with the oversized mail it was to so effectively normalize this experience that had been happening and it was a huge joke and everyone was laughing and i have no idea how this was sanctioned by the pastor or what not right yeah i mean looking back it was effectively normalizing you know something that that could have been akin to abuse right yes but anyway yes. one of the things around hazing and social psychology explains that hazing produces cognitive dissonance which is that that the mental stress you feel when dealing with two contradictory beliefs you know in some early social psychology experiments they showed that people try to dispel that dissonance from hazing in several ways and they can either convince themselves that the the initiation or you know this feeling is not very pleasant or they can exaggerate the positive characteristics of the group and minimize its negative aspects you know the more unpleasant that this situation or you know perhaps the initiation or whatever is the less they can convince themselves of the former 
So they have to exaggerate the latter. So basically, it's the idea that what people were experiencing was okay, was normal. Yeah, absolutely. In order to be a part of a group, that was some that was something normal. And and you know what? There was there was other things. It wasn't just this. I mean, there were things like sack whacking. There were experiences where young people were forced to box. There were other times where if young people didn't bring money for a for an offering or something like in the Bible study group, they were forced to do push-ups in the nude and Uh, things like that. What? Okay. Right? You know, it wasn't something that was uncommon, let's just say. Experience this environment of, of hazing. Do you look at that in terms of grooming? Do you have an opinion on how deliberate it was by certain people? I mean, obviously, a bunch of fifteen-year-olds can't rationalise that to the full extent. But, but what did yeah. the leaders? I, I, I know, and and the thing is, for me, right, and and a lot of the reflection upon this probably came to the fore for me at the time of the um the the royal commission into child sexual abuse i I was watching this and then i thought to myself wow isn't it lucky that i've i've never have been touched inappropriately by an adult when i was a young person and then i was thinking wow actually actually maybe i had you know and i was you know, I remember I was with my son at the time and, and, and tears came to my eyes and it just sort of motivated me to, I wrote to this person, you know, and I said that, listen, I acknowledge that it wasn't something that was predatory or anything like that. I didn't articulate it to be something that was anywhere near some of the circumstances that had you know, befallen other people in institutions like that. And, you know, my, my heart goes out to people who, you know, suffered so much. But I simply wanted to say that, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking when you did something like that? And I said, if I was to do that, if someone, if a young person came to me, mm. right, mm. for counselling, right, and I decided to do something like that, anything like that, right, in touching someone anywhere near, you know, their privates. That's the end of your I career. Would, yeah. I, yeah. I would have my registration gone, right, and worse. And I was thinking, what were you thinking? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To do something stupid, like what was it in the environment where somehow that, that sort of stuff was normal? And then ultimately, I held the people who decided to put such leaders in those positions accountable and ultimately the head. And the thing was, is that those individuals and, and the individual who I wrote, right, and I won't mention the name, I have no interest in any of that or, or whatnot, right? But today they're, they're deeply influential individuals, right? They have, you know, they're either pastors of these institutions themselves and on their YouTube, they have hundreds of thousands of views and things like that. But I just needed to say that you lacked in, in even like you lacked, you absolutely lacked the professional competence to work with young people. And then I question your professional competence now to work with people, right? That's what you've got to wonder is what's taken place since you were there as well. And maybe there is a lot more, right? But that is just talking to my experience and also to the way that 
I dealt with that. And for me, that was cathartic. Very courageous of you to go and face that. (laughs) And ultimately, that situation was denied, right? But however, they went on to vehemently apologise for anything that they might, any harm that they might have caused Mm -hmm. me in the past. The thing was, I don't care about anything that someone might have caused or might have done to anyone. It is a specific circumstance. And if you can't acknowledge that, and and the thing is, the thing that's tragic is that that's why, in a way, I have compassion for people in circumstances like that. Because in order to acknowledge the mistakes that we do as humans, it ultimately holds them vulnerable to losing all that stuff that they most desperately need. I had no intention of making their name public or anything like that. Or All I wanted was for them to acknowledge that that was wrong and that they were sorry that that happened. That's all I wanted. Yeah. They're in a situation where in order for them to put up their hand and say, okay, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, but then that makes them vulnerable to external critique and also potentially losing something that they deem as most desperate being their ministry or or whatnot. Yeah. And that's very kind of you. I think some of that, I mean, initially it was was a lot of anger, but um, I think over the years I've, I've come to feel a greater sense of, compassion for them and maybe also for the impossible situation that they they're in what else are they going to do you know they, they don't have the, the the qualifications or the, you know the the experience to do anything else but what they're the, the, what they're doing there right so their, their livelihoods you know are, are dependent on that so they're desperate to maintain it I mean you wouldn't protect anybody to keep them established I understand what you're saying it's interesting because you said you know you could have gone into a evangelism in the church but you went into a different career and wow what a, a much better choice that is even just from a career perspective because like you're saying what else can they do if yeah they don't have the formal qualifications to went to do anything but that yeah the professionalism wow. isn't encouraged no, of course. And, you know, there is that, there is that notion that, that, that I've always felt so aggrieved by is that, you know, that, that idea that, you know, God qualifies the called, not calls the qualified. You know, the problem with that is that the very fact that, that, that an institution like that desires influence and, and often has a great deal of power it sometimes means that they are forced to deal with some of the complexities of human existence or any institution, right? That deals with humans has to deal with the complexities of human existence, mental health. Yeah. Inconsistency. Discrimination. Yes. Yeah. Poverty, other significant pertinent concerns. So in just putting anyone in those situations, I mean, it's an absolute recipe for disaster. Surely, if you're going to deal with the most serious issues in the world, because that's what it is, right? When when we deal with the vulnerable, like you don't just want anyone; you want the best of the best. Yeah. But ultimately, in order to be put in a position of influence in these institutions, the only thing that they that they really require, the only prerequisite, is a relationship with those in senior leadership or whatnot, and that obviously needs to change. How can it change? It's it's so interesting. Even that horrible experience of checking the mail is part of that dynamic, that predatory sexual dynamic. Hey, and, but I don't know if those dynamics can change. I'm not sure. What do you think about the possibility of change within institutions that are so large and wield so much power? What what room is there for change? Would you know? Would they be able to continue if they changed? I guess is the question. To what extent could they continue operating as themselves? Were they to change? Yeah, I I really don't know. I mean, hey, I I know that 
you know, that there are many other people in this circumstance that might feel very differently. And, and you know, maybe I, I was like that for many years. I've, you know, I've, I've probably stepped away in terms of my own consciousness around this, but many people have the feeling that, you know, to, to tear it all down, you know, that, that, that is the only way in which something like this, you know, would mitigate harm in the future. That's not a it's not a negative perspective of mine. It's when you, you pull apart what their successes are, it's not much about working with the vulnerable. They yeah, might yeah. target them, the vulnerable. They might influence the vulnerable, but I'm not sure how much actual work is going on with them. And that's why I think they can get away with such a low standard of professionalism coupled with that yeah. religious authority yeah. that everybody takes for granted, yeah. You said that you left abruptly. Was there yeah, well, I, fork in the road? Well, I think in, in terms of reflecting on a lot of these issues that I'm talking about, right, and then one day my sister was slut-shamed, and then after that I just I, I said, Ariane, we're, uh, we're leaving, and then that was the last time that I ever went there. It's yeah. slut-shamed. Oh, by, oh. by one of the other leaders. Yeah, so she was, she was, also, she was in high school at that time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of the ironies is that the individual who did this is so heavily implicated in the, um, in the Hillsong New York issues. It, it, just, it just shows to me, like, yeah, it absolutely, it vindicates, you know, my ideas around the calibre of people who are put in these positions. Like these are, yeah. I don't know if it even is ironic, hey? Like it, it seems to be... It's not the exception. I'll tell you what I'm saying. It's not the exception. It's heading more towards the rule that, yeah, I don't know if that's about boundaries or devotion or that the founder was a prolific sex offender and you can't you can't disassociate too much from that dynamic or I don't know, but it's right through. Yeah. You know, there's, there's that idea that the reason as to why something has become so successful is because it has been blessed by God, right? And, and, and that has been the reason. And one of the things that I've come to, to really reflect on, at least in terms of countering that argument, particularly in, in, in Christian circles, is, you know, the, the things that are... The, that I mentioned was endemic at that time and effectively the global movement was spawned predominantly from that particular group. So, I mean, I look at small churches or small institutions or whatnot and those things don't occur there and yet they don't have worldwide fame, those small places that are just doing the right thing. So... That success might be because of something, but by virtue of the fact that those issues that I explained previously were endemic, it can't have possibly been influenced by the Holy Spirit or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Remember when they launched New York and a friend of mine saying, we've just, just got to wait 10 years and that, you know, the yeah. same things that will happen that we hear are happening in London and, yeah, it's. I believe it's an inherently abusive system, and that it it can't succeed the way it is structured now, with the values and beliefs that it has currently. So, yeah, there's a lot of people saying that you know change is a good thing, and just a few tweaks and things will be different. But I I just don't see that. Yeah, you know. So so when I think about these things, and you know, it, and if you believe in God and and to suggest that a culture where, you know, some of the things that I described yes. are common yeah, and that at the same time, God to be attributed to the group's success, you know, I, I just can't accept that. They can't coexist. You know? No, no, it, it's something, but I don't think it, it's God, you know. So while sure, a place can be wildly successful and yet it manifests from something which at times, to me at least, was the antithesis of God. You know, I think, you know, issues like 
internalized capitalism. Yeah, many, many things. And and you know, part of it was it was around my own personal reflection in terms of what were the needs that were being met by my presence there. And in many ways, I feel that if 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 people are going to sort of deconstruct the church, well, they also need to deconstruct their own ideas. You know, they they also need to, you know, look in deep themselves in terms of trying to understand what were their needs being yeah. met in an institution like yes. this. And for many, and I'm sure that there's thousands of people in the world who are going. And you know what power to them? If they feel that their needs are being met in a place like this, wonderful. And I'm sure there's many wonderful stories. And I think that's fantastic. If, if people find a sense of community, if people find a sense of worth, you know, who am I to take that away from them? I want to encourage that. Having our needs sure, met but, doesn't necessarily mean they're being met in a healthy Sure, and, 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 but I suppose the point that I'm trying to make is that for individuals who have stepped away from it and have attributed a lot of their, their, their pain to the, the experiences they had in the church, I hope that it also necessitates an inward look in terms of what were the factors that attributed to themselves being a part mm. of a place like that and for so long maybe it might be around attachment issues maybe it might be around the fact that you know it was deeply attractive they were deeply attracted to the things pertaining to fame the association with celebrity culture they were deeply attracted to the tangible aspects of mm. being something someone influential influential in general or influential in the church there are many good things right there is that intense affirmation from others mm. there might be internal affirmation that you feel that you know that you're a, a man or woman of god or, or whatnot and, and you feel that you're doing the right thing and you have a sense of purpose so i feel that it necessitates a, a greater look and i feel that in any context of healing needs to address some of those things that's such a great point all of these different causes have their own plus and minuses yes, but absolutely they and I've also been wondering lately whether or not we should be, you know, pointing fingers or laying blame at institutions or should we be looking at the society which promotes those institutions and gives them free reign and yes. prioritises them so highly that they yeah. can get away with whatever they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple things that we should do, and and I think that yeah, so dissecting some of the issues that that perpetuate the need to seek out an institution like this, mm. you know, you know, the work that I was involved with overseas, you know, sometimes I've spoken on you know the media or, or whatnot, and sometimes a bit hit and miss in terms of how I can answer this question, and and people try to ask, so what. What was it like? What, what was that experience engaging in conflict or war or where there was mass deprivation and whatnot? And I think that it, in many ways it was twofold, right? So on one hand, it can be quite traumatic, you know, vicarious trauma in hearing stories or, you know, observing people being discriminated and things like that. But then on the other hand, and this is something that, that I, I feel so deeply, is that sense of connectedness that I felt not just with the communities that I was working with but also in terms of my colleagues and you know I'm, I'm a big fan of a um of an author and um and investigative journalist called Sebastian Junger and he wrote a wonderful book called Tribe and a, a lot a lot of the, the points that, that he makes are so pertinent and it's something that I experienced when you're in an environment of insecurity and you have this feeling that you need to rely on your colleagues for your collective survival. And, you know, sometimes it can be maladaptive in that, in the, you know, there can be some serious boundary issues. But, you know, that feeling that the person that is next to you, that you need that person for your collective survival, your emotional survival in term, and also in terms of how you feel in this particular environment and I feel that as humans that we've we've evolved 
to rely on our neighbors for our collective survival. Mm. But we live in a context of safety. Almost our, our neighbors have become redundant. And then there's the focus predominantly on the, you know, on the nuclear family. But the thing is, pre previously, the onus wasn't just on the nuclear family. It was on the entire community. It took a village to raise a child, mm. right? And that is a thing that, that is redundant in the huge cities that we live in, our mm. industrialized countries, that it's redundant in terms of our need for our neighbor. And that is why we're constantly searching for this place where we can find that sense of safety and belonging. And I feel that as long as we have that need, you're always going to have situations like this where you have institutions that can sometimes be abusive, you know, that, that can sometimes have practices that are exploitative and things like that. So I think that on one hand, we need to be able to have a proper reflection in terms of how we can improve those institutions. But then on the other hand, I mean, how can we reconnect with that experience that, that we had as humans for hundreds of thousands of years, whereby we needed to connect not just with our significant others, mm -hmm. but everyone else in the village as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that I miss every day. So, so, you know, some people, they say, oh, you know, that, that seemed extremely intense, you know, in, in living in environments of war. And, but you know what? In many ways, I absolutely loved it. I didn't love the, the, the suffering, but I love that feeling of purpose. I love that feeling of feeling connected to a particular cause. I love the feeling of feeling connected to a particular group, people who came from vastly different contexts and societies that I grew up with but we all felt connected to something. And coming back to a place like Sydney, I feel that it's been a lack in my life. Yeah. That's especially interesting in terms of how you describe your work as having served in a, yeah. in a form of duty. It's not just worked. It's you served. Yeah. I, oh. I'd like to think it like that to some extent. Because, I mean, I have my own podcast, of course, which is called Hints for Healing. I can talk a lot more about these, these issues, but I, I try to unpack some of that uh, in, you know, some of the talks that I give around, you know, the, the diverse ways in which we can heal from torture and trauma. And it's predominantly focused towards the psychological recovery from people who have experienced war and refuge, refugee trauma, but also there are many many things that I think most people can identify with and things that they can take from as well. I'm usually quite candid about, about my experiences and, and some of these things, and hopefully it might be of benefit to some people. Hints for Healing, the podcast. Yes. Your take on all of these things is just so exquisite. I can't thank you enough for sharing it all and taking the time to do it so patiently. There's, they're such huge concepts and everybody's so different in absolutely, you know, absolutely. The, uh, right, different perspectives. to see the same thing the experiences that I think it's important to reverence the fact that everyone has different perspectives everyone has different ways of acknowledging everyone has different ways of perceiving and I understand I, I get the, the deconstruction movement and but sometimes it feels like it's sort of they're also perpetuating universality in terms of ideas and what people experience but I mean there are many many different experiences mm -hmm. right that might not fall within a particular framework that is being exposed right so I think that's also something really important you know to acknowledge and to, to get many different perspectives and different feelings I'm like you know I'm, I'm probably wrong about many things that's okay but it's, it's good to to be able to talk through it and and we might we might change the way. I'm constantly changing, you know, my attitudes mm. and the ways that I think and things like that. I think that's important. That's an exciting part of life yeah. after sort of quite a restrictive worldview, isn't Absolutely. it? Is Absolutely. The joy yes. of being wrong and the joy of not knowing. And... Yes, 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 yes. Very liberating. Yeah. A big thanks to Sean for that conversation. It's so, so important. 
And as an outro, Sean has asked me to share some of his thoughts with those who might be struggling for a way forward. While healing comes in many forms, within the colonial context of Hillsong, it's important to look at the work of France Fanon, who he referenced earlier. To decolonize is by definition a violent process without exception. Any forms of retort to their dominion is seen as aggression and to decolonize is the removal of said group and ideas and that process is only complete when the transition is total. Within this framework, Fanon similarly characterizes the assessment of the native population by the settler class as dehumanizing. That dehumanization makes you feel that you're insignificant and you don't have a voice. Disempowered and inferior. The natives are incapable of ethics as opposed to the Christian settlers who in their minds are the forces of good. So healing is the resistance of that idea. Healing is resistance by whatever means necessary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.